This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify brands the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable, durable, and sustainable furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water, stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Steroid CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Steroid to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 94 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Greg Davidson, the co-founder and CEO of Lalo. Lalo, short for Love All Little Ones, is a modern baby and toddler brand built for today's families, starting with a stylish high chair, tableware, and a play kit. In this episode, Greg shares with us his journey from growing up in Livingston, New Jersey, to getting kicked out of summer camp at 12 years old, to working in marketing and banking as part of a co-op program he participated in during college, to working in sales at a Y Combinator-backed startup called WayUp, to getting poached by Artsy to lead sales and partnerships, to starting Lalo with his long-term friend, Michael. We talk about imposter syndrome, the large-scale retention issue with hiring and keeping talent, why it's important to survive before you thrive, and how he validated the concept for Lalo. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning, or you can check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Greg, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story. I'm building Lalo. I was just thinking, I'm like, don't say Lalo. Don't say Lalo. And Lalo, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, having me. This is, uh, is going to be great. Your audio sounds so good. You're a super pro. You've got the mic, the headset. I mean... We try over here. My co-founder and I, Michael, last year we had season one of The Dad Pod, which was a Lalo podcast. So... We got all the equipment, hopefully season two coming soon for all you listeners out there. But yeah, so yeah, we had to, had to get all the pro equipment over here. Shameless plug, right? Right yep. in the beginning. Had to, had to, go had, for to. It. had to, had to, come on. <laughs> it's fine. You guys are dads. I like the whole like dad pod thing, the dad thing going on. It's, it's cute. Exactly. I'm excited to hear your story. You're calling in from where? Brooklyn? I, you said New York. Where are you? I'm in Lalo HQ, which is in uh, Brooklyn, New York. All right. Awesome. We're in Brooklyn. We're in Gowanus, which is near my co-founder's apartment. Uh, my co-founder lives in Park Slope. For a while, we were in Manhattan, where we were walking distance from my apartment. Now we're in, within walking distance from his apartment. So we just kind of split it up. We have a beautiful space here. Um, you know, Obviously, given COVID, we've had people in and some people out and whatnot, but uh, it's been a great space. I mean, we also we have some pretty large products and samples and some fun stuff you can probably see behind me um, in the video. But, uh, but yeah, it's been, uh, it's been good. That's awesome. And so are you from New York originally? So I am, uh, I'm from New Jersey, you know, just super exotic person being here. Where in Jersey? In a town called Livingston. But uh, yeah, so grew up in and around the city my whole life. Did move to San Francisco for a little while uh, after school, but ended up right back here. Nice. You're like, San Fran's not for me. Yeah, there's a, li- a little bit of that. Work ended up bringing me back. And so, you know, it was kind of like one of those serendipitous things where I moved out there thinking I'd be out there 
I didn't know how long, two, three, four, five, six years, who knew? Right at about the two-year mark, my uh, the job I was at at the time, one of our clients hired me and two of my other friends to actually help run one of the companies based in New York. What were you like as a kid? What was it like growing up? Growing up was fun. I mean, I was definitely pretty outgoing. I mean, if there, you saw like videos of me when I was especially little running around my house, I was literally bouncing off the walls a little bit, but always I'd say had some like entrepreneurial drive between like little things I would do as a little kid. And then as I got older, more business type endeavors that was even, you know, at camp when I was 12, figuring out how to make a couple bucks. Doing what? I don't know if I should say this, but I'll just, I guess I'll just say it. I almost got kicked out of camp for being the ultimate hustler. So a friend of mine, when I was about, I want to say it was like 12 or 13 portable DVD players had just came out and they were pretty expensive and not a lot of people had them at the time. And so, you know, when you're at camp, pizza is like gold and the older you were, you sometimes you had access to pizza, right? You could order in pizza once a week as you got older, even twice a week, three times a week, et cetera. And so one of my buddies of mine, I was old enough that year where we could order in pizza once a night, once a week. And uh, pizza is like gold to like younger kids who don't have access. And so what we did was we would actually trade our pizza for kids who are younger than us, portable DVD players. And then sensing demand, we would charge $100 a night to kids our own age for their DVD players. So just like a pretty... Pretty wild story. Um, we ended up making a couple bucks. Ended up getting in trouble. Someone told on us, but that was uh, that was my first foray into a you know a kind of an entrepreneurial endeavor, and they kind of have not stopped ever since. So some kid told on you, and you got kicked out of camp for for that. I made like a thousand bucks, so we were renting out two thousand between my partner and I. So you know we were had this going on for probably like four out of the eight weeks of camp. And so, yeah, I mean, we were renting out other people's DVD players. They weren't ours. <laughs> did they know you were renting them out? They did not know. No. Okay. Okay. Right. So a little bit of a mini crime happening at camp here. It wasn't exactly politically correct, but I definitely got my beak wet into, you know, figuring, figuring things out and just kind of hustling along the way. Where do you think that comes from? Definitely comes from my dad. Uh, there's no doubt about it. My dad was a was a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he was actually he was the first uh, franchisee of Taco Bell's in the state of New Jersey. So that was you know when I was growing up, my dog's name was Taco. Uh, like when I was a baby, truly, like that was name was Taco. And yeah, and then you know he also he opened up a chain of movie theaters and a bunch of other things. So I saw that from a pretty early age, and that was something I always just like felt and had in my bones and in my blood. So trying to carry that on now. And what about your mom and how many siblings did you have? My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And now being a parent, she had probably one of the hardest jobs around. There's no doubt about it. And so, yeah, so it was me. I'm the oldest. I have a younger brother who's a couple of years younger than me. And then a younger sister who's about five years younger than me. So, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. Had a great childhood and loved high school was not the best student, definitely not. Um, always knew that I was probably destined to work more than I was to uh, study a book. But yeah, and you know, because of that, I you know ended up going to college where I did, which was Northeastern, which they have a, a co-op program. So five-year program. There's three at three six-month periods out of the five years you actually work, and so it was great. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I. Uh, Got to live in New York, in the Northeastern of Boston, moved to New York for about 18 months throughout my college career, just working. And so it was, uh, it was awesome. I really got to know what I liked, what I didn't like. What did you do? What were some of the jobs? So I had, had a marketing job and then two in banking and ultimately realized that was not the path I wanted to take at all pretty quickly. And, on, and honestly, even part of the marketing gig, I learned more about what I didn't want to do and like what I was good at than even what I did want to do, ironically enough. And so like, you know, as I was making the checklist of what I would want to do post-college, I was able to scratch off a bunch of things uh, and start narrowing it down. So what did you narrow it down to? From that entrepreneurial spirit, I, 
I wasn't, I wasn't ready to start something. I, I knew that pretty clearly. I didn't really have the right idea. And so I ended up moving to San Francisco and I worked for a company that was then called Elastic Sales. Now it turned into a company, which some you know, listeners may or may not know about, which is a company called Close.io, which is a pretty powerful CRM that's pretty well known. Um, but what Elastic Sales did was they would, they would reach out to Elastic when they were building out a sales team. And they were saying, I want to figure out all the metrics involved, right? How many cold calls we need to make? How many emails should we be sending? When we should be sending them? And uh, you know, the clients, they range from like small divisions within Qualcomm and eBay and uh, Eventbrite at the time to like really, really, really young startups, or maybe who had a small sales team but needed some additional support. So what we did was we like did these pilots. And so for about eight weeks, I was the one cold calling. I was creating the email strategy. I was you know, putting together all the stats and metrics and kind of presenting a blueprint of like, if this is how much revenue you'd like to hit, this is kind of what the funnel looks like. And this is what you need to do. And it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, I mean, it was fast-paced, crazy. I was probably working on three different clients at a time. So I was you know, making cold calls for three different clients. And we were just like learning and figuring it out so we can present this you know, what ended up being this blueprint to the company be like, this is what you'll need to do to, to hit your goals. It was incredible. I moved to San Francisco. I didn't really know anybody there. Met two incredible friends, one who uh, I'm going to a wedding to actually this weekend, funny enough. And it was great. And so one of, my, one of our clients at the time uh, hired me and my two friends to actually, literally, I was 24 my other friends were 25 and they hired us to completely run their sales, marketing, and operations team. Now, how did you sell it as a package deal? Like, how did that happen that you get your friends recruited too? So, we all had worked on the account at different points in time and we all brought like something like a little bit different. So, you all worked together at Elastic. So, yes, I had these two friends also worked at Elastic with me and we all had worked on this account at some point in time. In, in a little bit different ways, and so it was. Uh, it was. It was amazing. It was. I was 24, managing five people, that ended up becoming a team of 30 over the course of a couple of years. You know, we took the business and uh, it was a $500,000 a year business, and ultimately, when I left, it was about 12 million. So yeah, it was crazy, crazy experience, but a lot of fun. And what was that company called? It was called Crossover. It was acquired uh, by a company called Blue Star Sports, but it was a sports uh, analytics company. So we were selling um, this software that would help coaches at the collegiate level and high school level actually like break down game film uh, for basketball, lacrosse, football, and a bunch of others. Did you guys all leave at the same time or like what, how did that chapter end? We all left at the exact same time. We flew to New York to meet with the, the CEO. I had lived in New York uh, or in New Jersey at the time. My, my parents were still there. And so... My two friends, they literally slept in my house. We went into the city the next day and we essentially said, here's our comp packages for all three of us that we'd like. We have the exact same commission, exact same salary. And so we're like, we're happy to do this if you essentially agree to these terms. And like within a week, he was like, let's do it. Uh, and then about, I want to say about a month and a half, two months later, we all moved back to New York together. All right. And then you were at Crossover for what, two years? I was there for about two, two and a half years. Um, and then one of my, my then girlfriend, now my wife, she was, she was actually working at a company that was called WayUp, which was uh, an HR tech platform. So a place to hire uh, interns as well as uh, entry-level students uh, into jobs. And so they were funny enough. They were going to Y Combinator. So they were a team of, I think, four at the time. I was going to be the four, or maybe they're a team of three. I was going to be the fourth employee. And they said, the only thing is when you start, you're going to have to move to California and live in a house with us for three months. So having you know, two years prior, I was living out there. I was like, yeah, this kind of sounds fun. Um, funny enough, while working there, that's where I actually met my co-founder, Michael. So Michael, he was not in the house with us. Uh, however, he ended up being the first hire we made when we got back as the head of brand partnerships with the company, and I was the uh, the head of sales. And so that's where we met. That's where we connected. And obviously, a lot has uh, a lot has happened since then and come of it. Wow! So it sounds like way up really uh, kind of helped you get your way up there with. <laughs> 
with the wife and the co-founder friend. Totally, totally. Yeah. I well, I met my I met my wife a little bit before, but her best friend was the second hire at Way Up. So it was uh funny. It was like I I lived with my wife's best friend before I ever lived with my wife. Oddly enough, <laughs> a little awkward. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. That's funny. She 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 knows some of my ticks now. She would call my my then girlfriend. And she's like, "Do you know Greg? Like, does this?" And she would be like, "Yes, I know." <laughs> oh my god! So your girlfriend at the time didn't work there too, or did she? She did not work there. Just my wife's friends. And so here you meet this Michael guy at Way Up, and you didn't have to move to California. It sounds like. So I did for three months. So I did live in a house with my co for for, y, for YC, um, and then ultimately moved. The company was still based in New York, so we all moved back. And then you know I was at Way Up for about I want to say about a year and a half, two years, and then I got poached by uh, a company called uh, Artsy, A R T S Y, and so they're one of the largest fine art marketplaces. And um, yeah, that was uh, and so I ended up becoming their VP of sales. And running a team that ended up being about 60 people across their office in New York, Hong Kong, LA, London, and Berlin. And that was a cool experience because at the time, it was a lot of people who knew about art. I honestly didn't know a shred about art, but I did know how to ultimately build an awesome sales team and you know, thought about you know, the product they were offering. So it was there for, for about two, two plus years and then ultimately um, started Lalo. And so Michael and I... We just like kept in touch after I left. He ended up staying at Way Up for almost, I want to say four or five years. And so we we just kept in touch. It was like one of those things where, you know, he was became my closest friend at work, kind of my confidant. We worked in different departments, but had a ton of overlap. And, you know, it was from uh, like you said, from those way up days and even through Artsy that, you know, Lalo came to be to where we are today. And so with Michael, when did the conversation start? Had, did you guys always want to start something together and it was just a matter of finding the right thing or like, how did it all happen? Good, good question. You know, Michael was always the guy who I go out to lunch with at work and I, you know, we would talk about random stuff, random ideas we had. I'll never forget Michael. Michael once we thought we were going to start something. It was, he wanted to do like kind of a, not Fred, like the blue aprons of the world were getting really popular around this time. But he wanted to do go to tailgates and do a tailgate box. It was like set up little stands, stands in every NFL team or college team at all these tailgates and have like all the tailgate materials just ready for you there. So you don't have to buy it ahead of time. I mean, not a bad idea if you sold to Penn State, right? You guys exactly. <laughs> exactly. So so well, he, you know, he went to Michigan. So he always he had that in his blood. Um, and so yeah, so you know, Michael and I. We kept in touch. We'd have dinner every now and then. And so in, I want to say the summer of 2017, Michael, Michael married his wife in January of 2017. I was not married yet. I was getting married in a couple months. But you know, I was always opportunistic, always looking for that idea to finally come to me that felt real enough. And so right around the time, one of my cousin had a kid and also one of my closest friends was having their first kid. And I watched them go through it. And at the time, you know, oddly enough, you know, I was registering for my wedding, right? So, you know, at that time I'm registering for pots and pans and knives and, you know, they're registering for things like strollers and high chairs and all these things that are, you know, it's totally different. And so from a purchasing behavior standpoint, right, I'm registering things that I at least had a baseline of knowledge of understanding, like, I, you know, I, I say this to be like, you know, I've cooked an omelet before. So I had a perceived understanding of like, when I go to purchase this product for myself, what would I want? And what is the type of quality I would want? What type of knife would I want? And when, you know, I was watching my friends and family go into baby, you don't know what you need, why you need it, when you need it. Yeah. It's a, it's a complete black hole. And so, you know, at the time, you know, there's obviously a bunch of other let's just call it DTC brands that really resonated with me with what they were building, the, the way they're trying to galvanize, I think, and shorten the, shorten the kind of the gamut between what it meant to be a mass market brand and a premium brand um, and really kind of galvanize it as a community. And so to me, like becoming a parent is probably one of the most common threads amongst humanity. It doesn't matter how rich you are, 
who you are, where you're from, what you look like. Like it's such a shared experience of people who are incredibly vulnerable. And this doesn't matter if you're a first time parent, second time parent, third time parent, seventh time parent. Um, it does get easier over time, I'm sure, but you still are going through a very similar experience. And so I thought there was something there. Funny enough was about a, a week later having dinner with Michael. And so I was like, I think there's something here in the space. The brands that exist today who are creating product in the category, they were, you know, Praying, you know, I would say preying upon that vulnerability of parents by preying upon the fear of you won't, you know, you won't sleep enough without having this product, or your kid won't be safe enough, or this is the safest product on the market. And so, you know, because knowing that, I think for both of us, becoming a parent was in the horizon at some point, you know, in the near future. We just thought about how we would want to be spoke, spoken to, um, and that's through transparency and with love. And we thought instead of focusing. On one product, what if we could develop product that kind of spanned different milestones that both parent and children went through together to make that shopping experience that much easier from kind of the overwhelming experience that it is? And so, yeah, we were like dived in super quickly. We incorporated four months later, uh, my brother at my wedding, we like just started like raising a couple of bucks. And my brother, obviously, in his best man speech, was like, there is a bucket outside if anyone wants to invest in the company. Um, donations <laughs> welcome. <laughs> donation, donations are welcome. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's been it's crazy that, you know, it's been this summer will be five years since we you know started on this journey. Wow, that's incredible. And so I'm just curious about the co-founder kind of partnership, right? What were the complementary skills that you kind of found in Michael that you thought would be a good fit? Were you guys very similar and that's why you went for it? Or how did you kind of view that? Was there any kind of question in your mind about, you know, how to determine whether or not someone is a really great co-founder for you? It's hard no matter what, right? It's like, when you move in with somebody, you don't really know everything about them until you ultimately move in. But I will say, Michael and I, we had a very different set of skills. Um, mine had been around building, building out teams and scaling teams and operationalizing them and all of those things. And Michael was like, if I had a question about brand, marketing, I just went directly to him. And so it ended up being really, really, really natural and you know for us one of the first things we did you know as you know we knew we were going to do this full time was we literally and we still have it and we showed it to every single kind of like round of capital we've shown it to investors like this is what michael has the final say on and this is what greg has the final say on and this is like a true checklist and so it really allows both of us we don't get me wrong we talk i talk to Michael more than I talked to my husband, my husband, my, my wife, uh, Michael is my work husband. Um, and so, you know, we, we know about each other's department at this point, you know, our team has grown, you know, pretty immensely over the past you know year or so, but like, we kind of know like where to draw the line. And it's been an incredible document that's really helped drive, I think both of us and, and just, uh, around the organization also just like with a lot of clarity. Do you think that final say thing can be scary for some people? Because what if it's like, what if you feel really strongly about a topic and then your co-founder is the one that has final say? So it actually doesn't, you know, like how, how do you guys work that out? Yeah. I mean, listen, you talk, you talk things out. Um, I, I, I say this pretty often. Being a, a co-founder with somebody is more like, I think it should be more like having a sibling than a best friend. Siblings, right? It's really built on this like, underlying mutual respect and love, you know, you're allowed to have those hard conversations, but you ultimately can get over it very, 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 very quickly. It's built on a foundation, I think, as sometimes as, as great as it is to have a best friend, some people lose best friends. You don't lose, you don't lose a sibling usually. They're still your sibling. Um, and so it, I think that document, if anything, has allowed us to just stay in our lanes and to really focus on the things that matter to us because those are the things that mattered to us really early. And the reason, the underlying reasons why we said we wanted to partner together as much as it was a document of who gets final say. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's probably hard for co-founders to have that conversation. It's not a, definitely not an easy one, but something that has allowed us to kind of, I think, stay in our, stay in our lanes, but also know kind of how to drive this business in the best way possible. Definitely. Yeah. I always think it's it's a bit scary, right? Going in with a co-founder. I've only ever been a, a you know solo founder. So I'm also speaking for myself of like, wow, that's it's tough to, I think, to make that commitment. 
but yeah, it takes a lot of communication and having hard conversations. So I'm sure very similar to a marriage is how they always compare it, right? For sure. For sure. Yeah. And there's no doubt about it. <laughs> so you just hope that you chose the right person. <laughs> you, 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 you hope that you chose, but like, you know, you learn, especially in those early days before, you know, before you launch, it's all roses. This is where, you know, this is why co-founders, you never, you don't see a lot of co-founders break up pre-launch. Um, it's usually post-launch when shit starts going sideways for one way or another. And it's because I think there's, there are disagreements. There are people who feel passionate on both sides of the aisle, things that maybe they shouldn't care as much about. You have to care about the right things. And when you have a co-founder, it's a partnership. Like there has to be a division of labor to ultimately steer the org and strategy in the best direction possible. And so for us, it was just really clear from, from day one. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a scary, scary, scary conversation to have probably for, for, for some people. I, it's, for us, it came pretty natural. We were, you know, we're both pretty passionate people. I think that's the one piece of overlap. Like We're both incredibly, incredibly passionate. So like those types of conversations you said definitely happen. But like I said, the foundation is you know, just super solid. In terms of, you know, you realized, okay, the baby space is really interesting. There's definitely room for a disruption here. What kind of made you land on that category? And why did you start with kind of a high chair? Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and lie. It was definitely a little bit opportunistic. Obviously, Michael and I, neither of us were parents when we initially started on this. Um, But really, like once we started digging our teeth in outside of that initial observation, we, because we are not parents, in those early days, become being a parent now. I have a 20 month old son with another on the way in May. Michael wow, has congrats. a thank you, thank you. Michael has a 22, uh, almost a year old daughter. He'll be a year in February. But like in those early days, we were just so objective opposed to subjective. I, I say this to people pretty often. Like I think about how many Shark Tank products I see, and it's like I'm a mom or I'm a dad, and I I personally had this problem. So I'm assuming everyone has this problem. And you know, parenting, yes, there are a lot of commonalities between it, but we wanted to build a brand that wasn't for one issue or one type of parent. We wanted to build a brand that could be for many, many, many different types of people. And so the first thing we did was we just surveyed people. What do you like? What do you not like? Um, what brands do you love? What brands do you hate? What colors do you like? And so we got a semblance and an understanding in the very early days of like, what people would want, what people want that they're not currently getting in the market. It was that that was kind of our guiding light to try to figure out what we wanted to make and why we wanted to make it. And so, yeah, so we, we ended up launching our high chair, which became you know, very fortunately you know, pretty successful early on. We sold out within the first two weeks. How did you find these people to interview? And how many did you have? We had that first, I think we had 1,200 people who filled it out. We just posted, we had mom friends of our post in different Facebook groups. We had friends send it out to their friends. It was just like it went, it, it kind of got bigger than, you know, it got much bigger than we had thought it would get. But we got so many different perspectives. Um, some questions were multiple choice, some were open ended. Um, and parents in general, an incredibly passionate segment of customers, as you can imagine, we got tons of answers. Um, and you know, we also like, I mean, we also just did a ton of research. Like we walked into the big box stores and saw how crazy and overwhelming the experience was. Um, we walked into specialty stores and just asked questions. Like we we did we did those things because we, you know, we weren't the customer yet, but we also wanted to build a brand that we thought we could grow into as, you know, knowing that hopefully being a parent was uh, was someone on the horizon. What were some of the insights that you got from this survey? I think there are a couple of things. Price point was definitely important, but from a perspective of like, there wasn't a price point that could cater to multiple sides of the market. And this was specific to high chairs. We weren't specifically targeting it at that point. We were thinking about the category just like at, at large, um, but we were you know talking about what brands people owned, and you saw like such a swath of you know even the person buying. The fifteen hundred dollar stroller was still potentially going on, you know, Amazon or big box store to get one of the least expensive items of tableware, and so there, there's not a lot of cohesion, and so that was kind of one of our driving lights was like, okay, from a price point standpoint as well as a brand standpoint, most importantly, brand standpoint, 
how could we kind of bring cohesion to this category, um, which is which is typically something or category that have been super fragmented. How could we bring cohesion where you know not only are we launching product, but we're really making the shopping experience that much easier by helping you figure out what you need and why you need it? Yeah, because otherwise you don't know what you need or why you need it. I mean, literally. So I have a nine-month-old, and with my oh, congrats! You know, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Parent club is real. Yeah. No um, joke. <laughs> so, but yeah, this whole baby, I mean, I, you know, it was COVID, so I had no baby shower. Right. And I'm like sending out this list, maybe doing a few zoom calls with family and friends, but you know, I, I literally copy pasted friends lists of, for the red, for the registries. I'm like, I don't have time to look this stuff up. Like, I don't have time to figure this out. Where's the manual? Where's the, you know, there is no operations manual and someone needs to make one. But yeah, even just for a registry, like there should just be one you can copy paste. And I did a few from my friends, different friends, and it was just shocking how different they were. (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute, why are you using this one? But this person's using this stroller and why are you doing this one and not, you know, car seat? And it's all over the place. Yes. Listen, I had a kid and it was still, it was still confusing. And I have a, and I have a baby brand, but that was exactly that. It was like, how can we provide something an experience that really helped people understand what they needed and why they needed it. And ultimately like when they needed it too, like there's so much misinformation or things that I'm sure you got off your registry that are just sitting around your house at this point. Or things I didn't even get. Cause I didn't know I would need spoons in six months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, us having a high chair plus having tableware, our naming, um, system is very simple. It's the chair. It's the starting solids kit, the things you would need to start solids. Like we're not here to confuse you. We're not here to you know play games with you. We're just kind of here to shoot it to you straight to understand as best as possible. Speaking of names, how did you guys come up with the name? So Lalo stands for love all little ones. We had a long list of other choices, but this one just when it happened, it was just like, okay, this is definitely the right one. How did it happen? Tell us the story. So we came up with something around like every, uh, you know, obviously every child should be loved. You know, we kind of started on that. And so, you know, my Michael was in uh, Mexico City and uh, he was at a wedding at a friend of his. And he literally just texted me one day. He's like, love all little ones, Lala. And I was like, see, this is why you're, you're my co-founder. Um, hence <laughs> Way to go, Michael. Before. Way to go. It's a good name. Exactly. So it just, uh, it really fell into our lap and just made a ton of sense. That's awesome. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Did you know that brands like Magic Spoon, Mudwater, and Caraway get an average of 20 times the return on their investment when using Malomo? Customers track their orders four to five times before it even gets to their door. And instead of sending them to the carrier's tracking page, Malomo built a tool to help brands optimize post-purchase marketing. Use order status emails and tracking pages to spur engagement and drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive in managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash stairway to CEO. While most people living in colder climates are getting ready to bring their outdoor furniture indoors to protect it during the winter months, customers of the popular brand Outer don't have to lift a finger. After all, outdoor furniture should stay outdoors, right? Made from durable materials like all-weather wicker that withstands temperatures down to negative 220 degrees with a marine-grade frame and legs, Outer ensures your outdoor sofa will stay good as new until spring and for many years to come. So if you're preparing to bundle up this winter, go get some marshmallows to roast over the fire pit and enjoy some cozy time outdoors with Outer. You can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. 
are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So you did this survey, you learned a few things. You're like, I think something's here. You know, what were some of the first things you did to prepare to launch the brand? It was tough. This category has not gotten a lot of love either in terms of you know, digitally native. I mean, most of the brands that most people are probably buying into, 80 to 85% of their brands are still controlled by retail. They're paying more for point of sale advertising than they are for digital marketing. And so there was a lot of education about why there should be excitement around this category, why um, the purchasing behavior in this category is incredibly interested. And so, you know, we were also selling just vision at that point. We didn't have anything outside of kind of the thought of who we could be, the types of products we could make, and the vision we had. And so they call it a friends and family around, but I can pretty much say outside of Michael and I's parents, we had no other friends or family uh, invest really um, in that first round. And it was really just us just like networking. The person said, no, who else should we talk to? You know, we're, I would say we're both pretty good people, person, people. People, people. (laughs) Yeah. People, people. Yeah. And really, we just kind of networked the hell out of it. So, you know, we've had a pretty, you know, up until our seed round, a significant amount of investors um, of just like really just like getting in front of as many people as we can. I mean, we've made tons of friends through the experience now. We've met tons of people from it, but uh, it was not always easy. I can definitely tell you that. Speaking of not easy, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced in building the company? I mean, it's been five years now. I'm sure there's tons, but what are some of the biggest hurdles that you faced? So, yes, it's been five since we started working. This March will be three since we launched the business. I think the first thing which I meant which I mentioned to you during fundraising is just the education we've had to give people about why they should be excited about this category had been had been challenging. The tide is really starting to turn now, now that you know the large majority of parents are millennial parents, they kind of understand the vision and the direction we want to take this into. But you know, the people that we are talking to were, you know, Gen Xers um, or even you know baby boomers at the time, you know, trying to get capital, and who just like didn't really see you know this old stodgy industry which had been controlled by private equity. Why you know there needed to be something new in it? So that was definitely something that was challenging in the early days. You know, after launching the business, people always expect that you know you're going to be the next Warby or the next Allbirds, and that from day one, this thing is just going to take off. That's just not the case with 99.9% of these businesses. It's it's a much slower burn. And so you know what I say now is like we, you know, we had those moments, but what got us out of it is like we had always had a concentration on surviving instead of thriving. And so that was always our mentality going into it. Um, is like, how do we survive? And you know, if you survive long enough, I promise you, you know, you'll end up thriving. So that was one thing. And you know, I think a, a third thing. You're doing things where you're kind of just saying, seeing which way the wind takes you sometimes in those in those early days between inventory buys, understanding your cash flow. You know, you're it was just Michael and I, maybe one person and then a couple of contractors. And so, you know, I would I think one of our biggest or biggest learnings was to, you know, just be just like really have an understanding of those things. Don't just Take things for granted because you might have some money in the bank, and you know you know you have some time to figure it out. Because the sooner you actually figure it out, is you're going to be able to have this thing flourish. And so we made you know tons of mistakes in the early days. So what was it that you were able to figure out? We were able to figure out ultimately the people we needed around us to make this thing successful. Um, Michael and I, we've learned a lot between you know I had no experience with. Uh, Figuring out, you know, how to build a, you know, fulfillment team and operations and freight and all those things. You know, we 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 learned that um, Michael, you know, products we had no idea together how to do, but we ultimately hired the right people and we figured it out. And so that was that was something that you know, without us figuring that out very 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 early, who we needed, not and not being so. I don't want to say egotistical that we were the best at it, but being able to bring people on board who we knew 
knew this truly better than us and not being afraid with allowing them to run with it. Yeah, definitely. That's important for good leadership, right? Is to hire smart people and let them do their thing. Totally. And so what are some other hurdles? As you've kind of grown the business, there's different, you know, things that come along, different challenges as after you launch and then you're trying to grow. And I think you've raised, well, Crunchbase says 5.6 million, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. So you guys have raised more, you've got some traction. How has the most recent raise gone? The most recent raise has gone great. I mean, listen, I think no matter who you are and what company you are, right? Hiring is definitely getting harder. I think that's just a macro trend that everyone is facing. Business, you know, luckily, has done incredibly well, especially over the course of 2020 and 2021. We've grown a ton, but we've been, you know, we've had a pretty, you know, even with the, you know, the people that I mentioned we hired in the early days, we've had a very, very, very lean team. We've only been, uh, you know, at times, you know, six people at certain points in 21. And so, you know, we're starting to obviously really, really pick things up, which is fantastic. I'm curious your thoughts, because a lot of founders I talk to are really struggling with hiring. What do you think it is? Why is it so challenging to find great talent right now? Why is there a shortage? And what do you think there are, what solutions are there to fix it? One of the first things we did, we just said, like, we're not going to hire people just in New York anymore. Um, so we've had contractors from, from everywhere. Um, but I guess to actually answer your question, what are the, what are the reasons? Um, I mean... You see, you know, I think it's becoming harder and harder. I think there's a large scale retention issue where certain organizations are actually leveling up with inflation and kind of where people feel like they they should be at. And so people are either leaving to say, can I be a contractor? They're leaving to potentially go to a new company. And people are just ultimately, I think, because they can also work remote or keeping their options open more than they typically have. Um, and so the way we've combated that over time is, number one, we don't just hire people in New York. We hire people from across the country. Half our team, actually more than half our team is fully remote in uh, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, Indiana, Colorado. Uh, so we, you know, we're starting to have people everywhere. And then also there's amazing, amazing contractors out there. And people, I think are so hung up on getting someone full-time because they haven't fully assessed the number of hours that role actually needs. And so as an organization, you can very smartly be like, okay, I know we need someone in this role, but do we need them right now? And if you do, like, how many hours do you think, like, is it, are you hundred percent sure it's full-time role? Because we've turned a bunch of contractors into full-time hires because not only do they like working here, we really make them feel like they're a team member. And even if they have other, we, we become their, their best client or the client that they hopefully like the most. And then sometimes we even hire them. Um, and so that's how, that's how we've combated it over the past you know, year or so. And you know, hopefully these challenges start to ease up. I'm not sure if they are or are not, but yeah. And then also just like being very cognizant of like, are your current pay scales, are they, are they up to what it's going to take to retain your best employees um, and making sure you're taking care of them? Yeah, definitely. And what do you think of the four-day work week? I'm actually pretty psyched about this. I hope it goes mainstream. What do you think? I don't know. You know, to me, I don't, I'm not sure what's more important. Is it the four? I'm, and I'll ask you this question: too. Is it the four-day work week, or is it flexibility to kind of kind of go and do as you please, like given like the remote work circumstances? My thought is that even though you're remote and you're full time, right. no one no one takes the breaks. Like right. no one's going to say, "Oh, let me." go take that doctor's appointment that I really should do. Or let me go grocery shopping in the middle of the day just because I have life to take care of, right? Like yeah. I think that people need a day. I think the leadership needs to say there needs to be a day. Friday is that day everybody's off. Because otherwise if otherwise I think people don't really speak up. I think that's fair. I, I mean I'm definitely interested in the four-week four work week. I will say, you know, we have a lot of young parents on our team. Um, and so what I think we've done just a good job at is like, I'll be totally honest. I mean, when I was not a parent and I used to see people leave, you know, whatever company I was at at five o'clock for bath time, be like, the hell is bath time? Like, what, <laughs> like, what, what is this like religious, what is right. this religious moment people leave for? But, yeah. you know, now Can being a wait, parent, you know? <laughs> exactly. Now being a parent working from home, I mean, yeah. like, you know, we, we respect everyone's time, no matter what they're doing. And we really try to empower, you know, and it, you don't have to, I mean, this is not just new parents on the team, but like a moment like that, where like, you need to take 
a decent amount of time off to like, just be with your family and your kid. That's like, I, at least for a lot of like what we're really focused on and like helping, helping empower that kind of generation of parent. So they don't have to feel bad about leaving at any point in time. I am in the same boat as you. I didn't realize until I realized as a parent. (laughs) Yeah. you, You never, you never do though. Right. Yep. So switching the conversation really quick to the product. I love it. I, my kid, Marvin, he loves it. I actually have pictures I have to show you now that he is sitting in. Yeah, please do. And I'm going to, no one can see right now, but yeah, he loves it. And it looks great in my kitchen because my kitchen is white. So unlike all the other brands that are dark and gray or whatever, and it's like, looks like this just functional thing, you know, it's like not very fun and beautiful. Yeah, I'm very happy to have something now that's actually complements the kitchen and looks like it deserves to be there. Totally. I mean, and that was that was so much of you know what we were trying to do is just because you're becoming a parent doesn't mean you should have to sacrifice your sense of self. Or style. Or style. Exactly. Like when you become a parent, you give up a lot of yourself. And there's only so many things that you can maintain. And so, you know, that's the kind of the common thread amongst, you know, all of the designs is like. Just because you know, just because you're a parent, you shouldn't have bright green plastic cartoonish pandas all over your home. And don't get me wrong, there is a time and place for those products because there just are. And as any parent knows, like you need a couple of those things. But there are certain things that you know you don't want to have to feel like you have to you have to hide everything when your friends come over or when family comes over, right? There's just certain things you want to feel confident you you can leave out. And so that's something that you know we care a lot about is you know you should be able to walk into you know you know, your home or you walk in your friend's home that has a lot of products and be like, oh, this thing, this stuff just makes sense. It just feels like it fits in with the decor or kind of what's going on in that home. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. It's like, you know, being a parent is hard enough. Might as well just look good doing it. You know, like, can't we just have some good looking stuff? And yeah. And I love you have the plates and the bowls and the sippy cup. I have to get all of that stuff too, because that's like the next level. He's in the solids phase, which I'm terrified of because I'm like, oh my God, please don't choke. Like every time I give him something. What has he tried? I'm really bad at this. <laughs> He's been having mush baby food because I'm afraid to give him anything solid. Have you tried avocado yet? I have. Yeah. Okay. But he doesn't really like it. Not yet. He, you know, he will. Once he what, starts having sushi one day. Give him like, what else do, can I make that, that is like, they like make like that, like baby oatmeal, but we have our spoons, which are perfect for it, which are yes. they're like, they're like little, they're little tiny spoons. So, you know, either you can feed it to, to him or he could, you know, he could he feed himself. Practice. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly. The whole thing. I have the, I have the other, I have the worst spoons. They're the ones that have the like rubber on the end and then they're metal. And then he grabs it and tries to gag himself, you know, and you're like, no, that's like not how you should be doing this. Get the metal out of your mouth and on your little teeth. Yeah. yeah. It's always a fun process starting solids though. It's also just super messy. It's so messy. And then I'm like, I don't have time for this. Right. And then you don't do it. And then you're like, you feel bad because you feel like your kid's not getting, you know, not learning the skills needed to pick up food. Totally. <laughs> uh, don't worry. He'll, he'll, he'll be fine. Each, each kid. And I can tell you from my own experience, like, and my, you know, my, my co-founder, uh, Michael's, uh, you know, daughter, each, each of these kids, they develop at their own timeline, at their own pace. Um, but it's, it's like, it's the best, it's the best thing in the world. It's fun. It is really fun. So yes, I got the white hair, that white high chair. It's gorgeous. Thank you. You have like the playset as well, which is super cute. You guys have just so many different colors too that are complimentary. What else can you tell me about the materials? I know you can put it in the dishwasher, which is great. So all of our so our, our high chair, it's made of you know sustainably sourced beechwood. And also our tableware is all FDA grade silicone. So, you know, the, the cool thing about, I think what Lalo does in some of our you know products, like our high chair is from a sustainability perspective, as much as about the materials. And it's also about how long you can use these products for, right? So, you know, our high chair turns into a play chair and that was, you know, designed very intentfully where a lot of stuff in this category, you end up throwing out. It's like you use it for six months, a year. And then you're like, what do I do with it? Where do I put it until my next kid? Or do people just you know, throw it out? And so in order to help create less waste, we said, okay, how can these things take on another, take on another form? So something like our high chair turning into a play chair. And then of course we have the play kit you can buy into. 
and even our even our tableware. So you know our bibs can you know last really anywhere from from zero to three or even older. All of our spoons are you know FDA grade silicone. So even from the earliest days, it could be even a, a chew toy, or you can feed them with them. Our cup, you know, you can use as a sippy cup with a straw, with just a spout, or as an open cup. Um, so you know, a lot of our products, you know, they'll always kind of have that DNA of like different potential use cases because there's not one type of parent. Like you shouldn't have to use a sippy cup if you don't want to. Some parents, you know, do you know baby led weaning and they want an, you know an open cup and they want their kids to, like every there's different methods for everybody. They want an open cup. They just were like, yeah, like, let the kid just splash it all over himself. Exactly. <laughs> just, 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 just have them learn. Exactly. And so like, it's not, you know, it's not up to us to tell you like the best way to parent every parent, every parent is unique in their own way. And, you know, we should be able to support them like that. That's right. Some people have more time than others, you know, and can clean up those messes all the time. <laughs> it's it's endless. Oh my gosh. Endless messes, no matter how much time you have. Totally. Oh my God. So what is next? What's coming out next? What I'll say is uh, we have something really exciting coming out next week. So we have uh, we have a, our play gym uh, is coming out. So just like I'm sure you have one of those um, play gyms where, you know, it's something you use from, you know, your kid is two weeks old and doing Tommy time for the first time with the toys hanging above their head. Yeah. Like the lovery thing. Exactly. However, one of the really cool thing about ours is it turns into a full-blown tent after. So you can put in your kid's playroom until they're three or four years old. And so, and you can also choose the color mat. And so this is for us a really, really exciting product because as much as we've grown, you know, over the past couple of years, what's really incredible is people get really excited about Lala. They do all this research. And so the first thing they can buy into and start using from us is our high chair. And so, you know, our high chair is something you start using when your kid is earliest four months old, maybe, you know, five, six months old and in, in, other, in, in certain cases. And so this is a, a product you start using when your kid is two, literally two weeks old. So it's kind of something, you, you know, for us, you'll start using when the kid is zero. Now it's our opportunity to have that connection with them that much earlier, um, opposed to, you know, with customer doing all this research, getting all excited about the brand. And then, you know, they don't start using our product until, you know, they, their child's a little bit older. So we're super, super, super excited about it. It's a big moment for us. And so, yeah, and it also looks beautiful, as you can imagine, it follows a very similar design language to our high chair and play table and play chair. You know what you guys need to make? One of those things like, you know, because my kid's going through the phase of like, he should be crawling and walking, you know, walking soon. And I got to, I'm like looking at those things. Where are the things where he has to push around and like try to balance? There's so many things you guys need to make like now. There's a ton of stuff. You know, I think what what you'll see, you'll see us go much deeper in on the home. That is our that is our strategy. And so to kind of how do we build a collection within each room within your home? So if it's the living room, the playroom, the kitchen, the the bathroom, could be the nursery. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for us to go in, in a lot of directions. Um, but really honing in on that zero to three age to support parents and in, in those earliest days. So before we kind of wrap up here. We talked about some challenges, um, stuff like that, but I'm just wondering, is there something that you wish you would have known before you started your business? Being a founder and having company is not just hard when the company goes hard, right? Like you bring your personal self to work and you bring your work self home. And people say like, I'm okay with failure. Um, I'm okay with failing. A lot of entrepreneurs, that's like what makes an entrepreneur, like they're comfortable with failure. They thrive in failure. They, you know, they feel like they can get out of situations and be okay with it. But listen, as, as you get older, like these things have a, can have a massive effect, especially like on your mental health. If it's, you know, you just bring shit home. It's just hard. It's hard not to. Um, and so realizing, I think that your personal life is so connected to your business life, especially as a founder. Like you are truly living and breathing this thing. I wish someone would kind of told me about their like true experiences. You hear like I think a lot of surface level experiences about what it's like, and I think there's more. There's a lot more commentary out there about it, but you know, I, I'd say that would probably be the most important thing. If someone like really like talked to me about that, um, I would have still made the same decision. I would have still done what I'm doing. But yeah, I mean, you just go through a lot of ups and downs and it's something everyone has to be prepared for. Yeah, it's really tough to, um, I guess, is it boundaries you think that, you know, advice for founders that are really struggling with that 
line between personal and work? I, I think it's like really try to think about like, how do you compartmentalize things? And like, how does that outwardly come out to, you know, to your spouse, to your friends? Like, how does, like, how does that all help happen? Because it's, it's so mishmashed. Setting boundaries is almost impossible as a founder, right? You either, like I said, I'm talking to my work husband, i.e. my co-founder, uh, more than I am my own wife. I still have, you know, putting my kid down and that's like 1030, my co-founder and I are on a phone call together. So I think it's hard to truly set boundaries as a founder. As an employee, I think you have more of an opportunity to do so. And the company usually should be empowering the employees to actually do that. Um, But as a founder, it's more about how do you figure out how you're going to compartmentalize different pieces of your life to make sure you're feeling fulfilled and excited to, to do what you're doing every single day. Right. And not letting the personal life fall to the wayside I've seen a lot of that happen, unfortunately, with startups. And then, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work out with the startup. And then the founder lost both, you know, a marriage and a company. And it's just like, woof, that's not good. It's tough. It's tough. You got to really got to have grit and you need to make sure like you're also just bring your most authentic self to work. So people don't know those underlying things about you. You don't have those conversations with your co-founder about, you know, how you're actually feeling, then who, who ultimately who is. It's almost like you have to have this heightened awareness about your life and yourself and, and really Before realize, going. yeah, and realize, okay, I need to take a step back. I need to do XYZ to make sure that I can get back up to speed on my business or get back up to speed in my relationship so that it doesn't, yeah, it's like constantly going back and forth, maintenance. Yes, yes. I think like hyper transparency is just super, super important. I'm, I'm, on both sides. So, one more question before we wrap up: What are some limiting beliefs you've had to overcome to get to where you are today? I think in the early days, and even till now, like who am I kidding? There's just like imposter syndrome. It doesn't matter how much money you raise. Like, there's always going to be, and it, as exciting as things get, there's always going to be someone who's trying to, to potentially bring you down, or you think is going to bring you down, and then ultimately. You know, as your team grows, it's like, it's like we're like I'm a first time founder. Um, I've done entrepreneurial things, but this is my first time, and so you have to have this undying belief in yourself. You know, undying belief in yourself that you know you're going to be able to make it. Because if you don't, it's going to be next to impossible to ultimately succeed. So I think that's definitely that's probably been throughout my journey. This is like when we were three people or four people or five people or six people. Um, and now, you know, we're you know getting to the point where we're about 16 people. But uh, yeah, that's like, that's been like the one thing that yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to just say like, wake up one day and be like, oh, like this is, this is exactly like the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And with failure being so rampant in the startup community and just as part of the job, to have to believe in yourself so strongly, I don't think it's so easy for people that have experienced failure. I totally agree. And I also think for even some of the most successful people along the way, they're still having imposter syndrome along the way. Like there's there's no doubt about it. It's it's like things change so quickly when you're a founder. You go from having no money to lots of money to hiring more people to saying, oh shit, we're on a hiring freeze. Like you go through so many ebbs and flows. Um, I'm not saying we Lalo is definitely not on a hiring freeze. We are hiring a ton of people. So if you want to come join us, please do. But there's just so many things that happen um, th- throughout the journey and you cannot foresee them. You absolutely cannot. Well, before we wrap up, do you have any final advice for entrepreneurs tuning in? There's, I think there's a lot of people out there that might be listening to the show that are really thinking about taking the leap into starting their own business. And what would you have to say to them? Yeah, I think two things. I said I said it a little bit earlier, but that kind of our mantra and my mantra has always been survive before you thrive. Really think about that. Like don't think about things too big before you're not. Really thinking about what is it going to take to ultimately survive. And I, I can tell you from you know my perspective and even Lala's perspective, that's definitely the case. And yeah, you know, I think I think second second is just you know what I what I said before is mentally you know ensure that you're ready the people around you are ready because it's a, it's it's a roller coaster it's the best roller coaster it's so much fun I wouldn't trade it for the world um, but it's a, it's a ride and you just have to be ready to persevere through 
Awesome. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate your time and joining us on the show today. I'm excited to see the launch of your play gym and um, the future of Lalo. So thanks so much for telling your story. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me. I'm glad to hear your son's having a fun time in all of his Lalo gear. Totally loving it. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.